0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to Building Our Power. This is Gabby and KT, and we're back with another episode. You can us up on our social media channels at Building Our PWR. Uh, remember, guys, if you'd like to contribute to the work we are doing—the redistribution of funds, the passing out of signs and books, the stocking of the fridge, uh, the little garden we got going on—you can do so. The link is in the bio, monetary and physical. Uh, contributions are very appreciated. thank you everybody who's done it so far um definitely going towards good causes all right guys we're going to do a different type of episode today um as some of you know some of you may not not know may 19th That was last week, and that was Malcolm X's birthday. Last May 19th, we did an episode uh, entitled MLK Was a Sellout, where we talked about the M19 organization and uh, Malcolm X's message to the grassroots speech. Today, we're going to play in full um, the album uh, Ballet or the Bullet by Malcolm X. And after that, we are going to comment on... um, what he was talking about from an anarchist, uh, anarcho-communist perspective. Um, so, hope you guys enjoy
1: it. Articulate, perceptive, courageous, outspoken. Just a few of the adjectives that so inadequately describe Malcolm X. Few singular personalities have emerged on the national and international scene to so excite and stimulate interest in the plight of 22 million Afro-Americans in the U.S.A., controversial, without a doubt, not only speaking out the agonies of 22 million members of the black masses, but effectively voicing the guarded views and opinions of many of his detractors in the Negro elite. Indeed, Malcolm X speaks again, is particularly timely, as the spirit and status of this great human, even after physical death, continues to live and grow. We are privileged to again hear the voice of Minister... Malcolm X. Thank you,
2: thank you, 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 ladies and gentlemen. I welcome the opportunity to come into your home. Uh,
1: sir, I would like to know what your position is on nonviolence.
2: Well, nonviolence is one of the things that has disarmed the so called Negro here in America. And any Negro leader who teaches our people to be nonviolent in the face of the violence that we've been uh experiencing for the past 400 years is actually doing our people a disservice in fact it's a crime it's a crime for any negro leader to teach our people uh not to do something to protect ourselves especially in the face of the violence that is inflicted upon us by the white people here in america and whenever you teach a man to turn the other cheek or to be nonviolent, what you're actually doing is disarming the victim of white uh brutality you're robbing him of his right to defend himself. In fact, the only time it's intelligent to be nonviolent is when you're dealing with someone else who's nonviolent. I'm nonviolent with those who are nonviolent with me. This is intelligent. But just as you see other people doing whatever is necessary to protect themselves, it's time today for the 22 million Afro Americans to feel free to do whatever is necessary to, to protect ourselves. Take for an example, in the Constitution, it gives uh, a person the right to have a rifle or a shotgun. And in areas uh, in this country where the government has proven itself either unwilling or unable to defend the black people, it is time for the black man to stand up and start defending himself, not to go out and initiate acts of aggression against uh, whites or initiate acts of aggression against anyone, but in areas where we see that the government will not protect us or defend us or find those who have brutalized us and made us the victims for the past 400 years then it is time for us to do whatever is necessary to defend ourselves. And it should be emphasized that by this I don't mean that we should go out and look for trouble or start trouble or initiate acts of aggression. But we should feel that we are within our human rights, our civil rights, and within the rights of intelligence to do whatever is necessary when we are attacked to defend ourselves. In fact, the best thing to teach our people is never to be the aggressor never to look for trouble. But anytime anyone makes any effort to brutalize us or to inflict wounds upon us, we should feel that we are within our rights to do whatever is necessary to repel them. Do nothing unto anyone, but always do whatever is necessary to keep others from doing to you, which they've been doing for the past 400 years, making us the victims of brutality. But is it
1: not a fact, Minister, that uh, people like Dr. Martin Luther King, who have advocated
2: nonviolence, have been successful with their nonviolent moves? While they've been successful in going to jail, uh, they've been successful in becoming the victims of police dogs and uh, police clubs and water hoses. Uh, if Dr. Martin Luther King feels that this is the best way to gain freedom, justice, and equality for our people in this country, well and good. I have no criticism of him whatsoever, but I think that the time has come now where the masses of black people feel that nonviolence shouldn't be taught to us unless it's also taught to the white people in this country. and. Black people shouldn't be taught to turn the other cheek unless the white people are taught to turn the other cheek. Now, if Dr. Martin Luther King can be so successful in disarming Negroes, they should send him to Russia and let him disarm the Russians, let him disarm right. some of these other countries where...
1: <laughs> that that may sound good in philosophy, Minister Malcolm, but uh, I still have to take the stand that Dr. King has been a degree successful with the non uh violence movement. Now, let us take the March on Washington, for instance. Was this not something that
2: exemplified the feeling of the Negro and made everyone very, very happy? It depends on whether or not anything was gotten out of it. In fact, yes, it probably made them happy. Most of the people I saw involved in the March on Washington looked very, very happy. In fact, they looked too happy to be involved in a Negro revolt. So that uh, insofar as the March on Washington producing meaningful results, Most of the masses of black people today in this year are beginning to see where nothing came of it other than the fact that it gave many of the bourgeois Negroes a chance to feel that they were doing something without really having to do anything. It became a status symbol. Just like going to the uh, Kentucky Derby is a status symbol for those who know nothing about horses. They like to be able to say they went to the Kentucky Derby and they can't tell a horse from a cow. Or the Rose Bowl game. They like to be able to say they went to the Rose Bowl game and they don't know a football from a baseball. But the fact that they can say they went to the Rose Bowl game is a status symbol. Or the fact that they can say they went to the Kentucky Derby is a status symbol. So many Negroes took the opportunity to say that they were in the March on Washington. Not that it produced anything, or not that they really felt that they were involved in a Negro revolution, but it gave them a chance to say, I was there, it was a status symbol. But status symbols don't take us out of the alleys and out of the ghettos and out of the slums. Status symbols don't remove segregated school systems. Status symbols don't get meaningful civil rights legislation. So when it comes to the March on Washington and all of these other nonviolent approaches, they were good in their day. But this is a new day, and it's a new Negro. But we will have to agree,
1: uh, Minister Malcolm, that the March on Washington was the forerunner to the creation of, or at least to the uh, presentment of, the Civil Rights Bill without this type of... Approach. I doubt seriously that the civil rights bill would have even been entered onto the floor.
2: Uh, A horse can enter into the race and come so far from the finish line that you don't even know that that horse was in the race. And since the March on Washington was designed to produce meaningful civil rights legislation, and if I recall, I heard several of the leaders of it point out that we'll be back if the bill uh, meets with any kind of opposition come September. They said this in August. Now, September passed, and the bill didn't even come up. Uh, October passed, November passed, uh, December passed, the year passed, everything passed, and the bill hasn't been passed yet.
1: Are you saying that you feel a more violent approach to it would cause this bill to be passed? Uh, It's it's not a case
2: of violence, and I think that uh, our people should never let themselves be trapped intellectually into thinking that whenever they do something to defend themselves against the violence of the white man, that they're being violent. But you're
1: advocating violence.
2: Aren't no, you we're ad- we're advocating. Uh the necessity of black people defending themselves against the violence of the white man because the American government has already proven itself either unable or unwilling to defend us as it should do.
1: Well, the white man hasn't gone out to create any uh, marches, nor has he gone out to uh, do anything that would uh, make the people in the communities feel that he was opposed by law to their
2: thinking. No, all he has done is sick his police dogs on innocent black women and babies. All he has done is put his fire hoses on innocent women and children, black women and children. Or all he has done is uh, shoot Medgar Evers in the back. Or he has bombed the church in Birmingham, Alabama and murdered four innocent little girls. Or he has shot down young boys from their bicycle as they were riding innocently through the street. That's that's all he has done. Well, you feel that this uh, is a cause for the Negro to take on the uh, violent act. It's not a case of the Negro taking on a violent act, but it's a case of the Negro doing what is necessary to defend himself against the violent acts of the whites, right. since the government has refused right. to defend the Negro. Right. The church was bombed, and the government has done nothing about it. Right. Medgar Evers was murdered, and the government has done nothing about right. it. Right. Emmett Till and Charles Mac Potter were murdered, and the government has done nothing about right. it. Right. But at the same time, the government is in South Vietnam. Trying to tell them what to do. The government is in Berlin trying to tell them what right, to do. The government is in Africa trying to tell them what to do. But it cannot get its own people here in Mississippi and Alabama and New York City and tell them what to do.
1: Right. <laughs> Mr. Malcolm X discusses human or civil rights. Mr. Malcolm, I'd like to know why you place so much emphasis on calling the freedom struggle among Afro-Americans in this country a struggle for
3: human rights rather than civil rights.
2: Well, most of our people don't even know (coughs) the meaning of civil rights. And by not knowing what it is they're actually trying to get, it has uh, eluded us for the past uh, 100 years. Civil rights is supposed to mean citizenship. Uh, When you have civil rights, you have citizenship. When you have citizenship, you have civil rights. And if the uh, 22 million Afro-Americans were actually citizens of this country, it wouldn't be necessary to pass any kind of uh, additional legislation to include us in the Constitution. If you notice, uh, whenever the uh, people come here from Europe, uh, they can come here from Poland, which is a communist country. They, they don't need any legislation to make this Polish person uh, a citizen. They don't need any additional civil rights legislation to make the refugees from uh, Hungary who come here citizens. They don't need any additional uh, legislation to make anyone who comes to this country a citizen. But when it comes to the rights of the black people who are the descendants of slaves, then immediately uh, new legislation is necessary. Uh, So this right here uh, implies that when the Constitution was written in some way or other, it must have excluded those of us who were slaves at that time. And because we were excluded from the Constitution when it was originally written, today they have to amend it in order to include us. Uh, But if you notice, the Civil War didn't include us in the Constitution. Had the Civil War included us in the Constitution, we would be citizens today. Had the amendments even to the Constitution actually included us, we we would be citizens today. If the Supreme Court desegregation decision way back in 1954 was sufficient to include us into the jurisdiction of the Constitution, all of our problems would be solved today. So there's something about civil rights that makes it almost uh, uh, impossible for us to get it. So you have to know the difference between civil rights and human rights. As long as our people are begging for civil rights or they are labeling their struggle for freedom, justice, and equality under the label of civil rights, then what they do is uh, leave us in the jurisdiction of Uncle Sam's courts. And it's actually Uncle Sam who is guilty of all of the uh, violation of our rights that have taken place in this country. So when you go to Uncle Sam to try and get some kind of redress over civil rights uh, violations, you're taking your case to the man who's responsible for the, for the violation. So the only way our people can really get some meaningful results, it has to be taken out of Uncle Sam's hands and taken into a world court. And the world court that has been set up to listen to the complaints of human rights violations is, is in the United Nations. Human rights are international and civil rights come within the jurisdiction of the country where these rights are violated. Some people may wonder why our brothers from Africa and Asia have not spoken out more boldly or without uh, compromise on the injustices that the 22 million Afro-Americans experience in this country. They can't speak out. As long as these uh, injustices are labeled by us as civil rights, then this remains a domestic issue, and none of our people from abroad, because of protocol, can become involved in Uncle Sam's domestic problems. So all the civil rights groups have to do is expand the struggle from civil rights to human rights. And once it is expanded to the level of human rights, then this puts us in a position to charge Uncle Sam with violating the UN Charter on Human Rights. We can take it before the United Nations and other nations of this earth can then side with us and indict Uncle Sam for the mistreatment of 22 million Afro-Americans. The very fact that uh, the struggle of the black people in South Africa, or I should say the injustices that have been experienced by black people in South Africa have come, has come before the UN or the injustices experienced by our own people, again, in uh, Angola has been brought before the U.N. Even the uh, oppression of the Hungarians has been brought before the U.N. The uh, plight of the Jews in Soviet Russia, and there's only 3 million of them in Russia, has been brought before the U.N. Well, then why hasn't the problem of the 22 million Afro-Americans come before the United Nations? It has not come before them because the leaders of the civil rights struggle don't understand what civil rights actually amount to. Um, when they are mature to the point where they can see that their present struggle has kept them under Uncle Sam's jurisdiction and Uncle Sam is not morally uh, <laughs> capable of solving this problem, then they will shift it out of uh, the courts of Uncle Sam and take it to the courts of the United Nations on the level of human rights and we'll get some kind of meaningful result. As long as we keep it at the civil rights level, level, we alienate the support of our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia. But when we shift it to the level of human rights, we have the support of billions of black, brown, red, and yellow people from all over this earth behind us.
1: The United States is a great world power and has in the past exercised a lot of control and power within the
3: United Nations. So how can you expect to wage a successful battle against such a powerful country in a world court?
2: Well, whenever you uh, believe in what the United States has taught us concerning democracy, which means uh, one voice, one vote, uh, uh, this is good because in the present uh, world setup, world governmental setup, as is represented by the United Nations, each country there has one vote, which means that no matter how wealthy a nation is, it only has one vote. And no matter how poor a nation is, it still has one vote. So the ballot actually equalizes the poor man and the rich man. Uh, Back when the United Nations was set up, uh, it consisted uh, largely of white nations, because most of the dark nations were then colonized and weren't uh, independent. Since the uh, dark nations have gained their independence and have emerged Uh, on the scene. Today in the UN, you have more dark nations who are in a position to vote in a block than you have white nations. So that uh, we have a situation now where the grouping together of the dark nations who formerly were colonized has given them enough political power to offset the the military power and prestige of these mighty uh, white nations of the West. And it is their support, it is only in the United Nations, where everyone has the ballot, where everyone has equal vote that the plight of the black man can be given a just hearing and the weight of the dark world can come down on our side and balance the scales on our side. But whenever you take it into the white man's court, you never will get justice because the white man is the guilty one who committed the crime in the first place. It's like taking your case from the wolf to the fox to take it to Washington, D.C.
1: I don't think I wholeheartedly go along with that, uh, Mr. Malcolm. I uh, have some appreciation for your discussion as regards to uh, the uh, human right and uh, the civil right. But here in America, as a band of Negroes, I think the most progressive thinking that we could possibly attain is civil rights. This is the thing that we want. This is the thing that we hope to get. This is the thing that we're going out to fight for. Without our civil rights, the human rights and the rest of the elements are are non-entities as far as I'm concerned. Human rights come before civil
2: rights. Human that rights, may be so, but the civil rights are an important factor. You can they never get uh, civil rights until you have human rights. Human rights represent the right to be a human being. Whenever you are respected and recognized as a human being, your civil rights are automatic. But if what? we get civil rights, we are human beings. No, we you, have, human no beings. you have to get the recognition of human rights first. This is why uh, people can come here from Africa and Asia and immediately uh, are able to benefit from what the Constitution stands for because they are recognized as a human being when they touch the shores of North America. But the black people in this country, all of our human characteristics were destroyed by slavery. Our language was destroyed. Our history was destroyed. Our culture was destroyed. And then the white man taught us that we were savages in the jungle and living at a subhuman level. And for this reason, when they put the constitution together, they classified our people as three-fifths of a man, which meant subhuman, not a complete human being. And once our human characteristics were completely destroyed, this gave them justification for treating us like we were animals. And, then, and it also justified their selling us from plantation to plantation like you sell a horse and a cow and a bag of wheat. Why, George Washington himself historically is on record as having sold or having traded a black man for a keg of molasses which shows you he didn't regard that black man as a human being. If the black man's human rights had been respected, he never could have been a slave here in America, and if his human rights had been restored by the Emancipation Proclamation, automatically we would have been citizens right after the Civil War. So we must be uh, regarded as humans, our human rights must be respected before we can ever be regarded as citizens and our civil rights be respected.
1: Sunday, September 15th, in the year of our Lord, 1963. It was a cool, overcast morning in Birmingham, Alabama. Sunday school classes were just ending in the basement of the 50 year old yellow brick pitch. The morning's lesson was The Love That Forgives, the fifth chapter of Matthew. Outside, parents were arriving to collect the children. At 22 minutes past the hour of 10, a force let loose that electrified and shook the world. Great chunks of stone shot out like artillery through parked cars. A metal railing tore from its concrete bed and shot across the street into the window of the social dry cleaning store. Customers in the next door Silver Springs restaurant were knocked to the floor. Inside the church, someone yelled.
2: Lie on the floor! Everybody, lie on the floor!
1: Rafters collapsed. The skylight fell on the pulpit. Part of a stained glass window shattered, obliterating the face of Christ.
2: Everybody out! Move out! Out quickly!
1: Children stumbled through litter and twisted metal, broken chairs, splintered wooden benches, shredded hymn books and Bible. Police cars sirened into the block. Workers barehanded dug deeper into the rubble and uncovered the bodies of four little girls. The church pastor, the Reverend John Cross, urged the people to go home. Please go home. Go home, everybody. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want.
3: We give them love and we get this.
1: The Birmingham Police Department's six-wheel riot tank entered the area and cops commenced firing shotguns over the Negroes' heads to rock-throwing retaliation. Young boys started stoning passing cars with white passengers. Police ordered them to stop. One 16-year-old boy ran. A cop killed him with a buckshot blast. September 15,
2: 1963. 19 hurt, five dead. This didn't happen in Nazi Germany, and it didn't happen in South Africa. It happened right here in America, in Birmingham, Alabama. It didn't happen back in the Dark Ages. It happened in 1963, right after the march on Washington. And it wasn't a dream. This was a nightmare. Where were the leaders? Where was America? Where was the government? Minister Malcolm, who was guilty of the bombing in Birmingham? The government was guilty. The guilt is upon the United States government for the murder of those four little girls who died in that bombing. The guilt was upon the United States government for those little boys who were shot down right afterwards because it is the failure of the government to do its job that has given the people of that area the feeling that they can brutalize and victimize and murder the Afro-American in cold blood knowing that nothing will be done about it. The government was guilty. The government still is guilty. The murderers of those little girls have been brought to justice. Minister Malcolm, do you
1: feel that the government, as charged, uh, being guilty, should inject themselves into this? There seems to be some technicality as to the fact that they can't get into this due to the fact that this is a state as against government opposition, where the legal matter of it is concerned.
2: Well, it has become impossible for the government in Washington, D.C. to intercede because... Uh, If you study the structure of the United States government, you'll find that out of 16 senatorial committees that govern this country, 10 of them are in the hands of the senators who are nothing but Southern segregationists. Out of the 20 congressional committees that govern the country, 12 of them are in the hands of uh, congressmen who are nothing but Southern segregationists. So we can see that the government itself in Washington, D.C., is a segregationist government. And uh, they teach you and me that the South lost the Civil War. But at the same time, when we examine the structure of the government, we find that it is run by white racists, by white supremacists, by segregationists who are called dixocrats, but are actually nothing but Democrats, whose leader is just sitting in the White House, who himself is also a former senator from a segregationist racist state known as Texas.
1: Well, this may be true, but this does not hamper the fact. Minister Malcolm, that there is a legal procedure. Now, in
2: these bombings, and the question is, who is guilty of them? They didn't have to worry about a legal procedure when they wanted to send troops into South Vietnam. They didn't worry about legal procedures when they wanted to send their troops into Cuba and tell the Cubans what to do. Uncle Sam has never worried about legality. Whenever he wanted to send his troops wherever his interests were threatened. But when it comes to uh, protecting the lives of 22 million Afro-Americans, then all of a sudden Uncle Sam becomes very conscious of legality. Well, isn't it a fact that they did send soldiers into Birmingham, Alabama, and on the perimeter they were held? I, I think you'll find that for several weeks when Dr. Martin Luther King and his uh, cohorts were the victim of uh, cattle progs and water hoses and vicious police dogs in Birmingham, they were calling upon Washington, D.C. to come to their rescue and the only word that they got out of Washington was that no stature had been violated that would allow Washington to intercede, to inject itself into that dispute. But as long as the Negroes in Birmingham, Alabama were being nonviolent and were turning the other cheek, then there was nothing the government in Washington could do about it. As long as brutal attack, the government in Washington professed that it could do nothing about it. But on that night, when the Negroes exploded that Saturday night and began to react against the whites who had been brutalizing them, then the government in Washington, D.C. sent troops in. And they didn't send troops in to protect the Negroes because Negroes had been the victims of brutality for several weeks. They sent troops into Birmingham, Alabama only when the lives and the property of the white racists and segregationists in Alabama were being threatened.
1: But specifically as regards to the church, the bombing, and the children, of course, which was an atrocity beyond belief, The government, in all fairness, is not able to fight that case in that it happened within the city and its city
2: government, state government. Well, the government saw fit to send the football coach down to investigate it, and since when do governments send football coaches to investigate atrocities? Whenever this same government sees its uh, interests being threatened in Cyprus or threatened in the Congo or threatened in the Middle East, they look for uh, diplomats of international stature. But these same diplomats who were sent abroad to settle the differences of other people if they were sent into Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi, why, they would hang that diplomat on a tree.
1: Well, don't you think that Dr. King and all the rest of the uh, very wonderful leaders, Throughout the state of Alabama, don't you think that they have tried and made uh, sufficient enough effort in
2: the handling of this case? Well, Dr. King and many of the other wonderful leaders who are in the South and other parts of the country have been doing the best that they could. But their odds against them are so great uh, on the part of the white racists and the white supremacists. And they work in conjunction with many of the white racists here in the North who pose as liberals. So we can see today that it is almost impossible for Dr. King to win. So we're going to need some help on a broader scale from a more powerful source. What source do you think that this particular help is needed from? As our darker brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia in Latin America are awakened and become enlightened and emerge and get their independence and are able to get in positions of power, they look here in America and see the plight of their little darker brother, the 22 million Afro-Americans. And as they see our plight and their sympathy and feeling for us increases, sooner or later some kind of move has to be made to bring an end to this unjust Situation that 22 million Afro Americans find ourselves confronted by here in the land of the free and the home of the brave.
1: Gentlemen, Minister Malcolm X discusses the ballot or bullet.
0: (laughs) Minister Malcolm, what do you mean by the ballot or the bullet?
2: Well, as our people, the Afro-Americans, uh, become politically mature, they become very much uh, aware of the recent trend in political elections. They see that every time there's an election recently, there's always a recount that whites are so evenly divided politically that in many areas, the, the race is so close that they have to count the votes all over again to see who got in office. You had a, a recount where the governor was concerned in Massachusetts or in Minnesota or in Rhode Island, and the same thing was so close between President Kennedy and Nixon that uh, they had to count the votes all over again. And our people are beginning to see this, and they also realize that any minority group that has a a block of votes is able to determine who'll be the next mayor, or who'll be the next governor, or who'll be the next president, or who will be the next congressman, or the next senator. And this enables them to see the strategic position that they are in. Also, they realize that it was the black vote that put the present administration in Washington, D.C. It was the black vote here in America that put uh, a democratic administration in Washington, D.C. And despite the fact that it is uh, admitted by the students of political science that the 22 million Afro-Americans were the ones who put the present administration in power in Washington, D.C., the present administration has put us last. We put them first, but they put us last. And you may say, well, why do I say this? Because they've been down there for four years and are only just now getting around to civil rights legislation or doing something about the violation of the civil rights of the 22 million Afro-Americans who put them in power. Now, uh, despite the fact that they claim that they can do nothing about this, when you look at the structure of the senators and uh, the congressmen in Washington, D.C., or the two political parties, we can see where the congressmen are concerned, 257 of them are Democrats and only 177 of them are Republicans. That means that the Democratic Party controls two-thirds of the House of Representatives, and where the Senators are concerned, there are 67 Democratic uh, Senators and only 33 Republicans. They so controls two-thirds of the House of Representatives and also control two-thirds of the Senate. And despite the fact that they control two-thirds of the House and the Senate, and are able to pass all the other type of legislation that comes up, When it comes to the rights of the black people in this country who put them in power, they always have some kind of alibi to give the Negro to try and explain why they have not been able to deliver uh, or keep their promises or the promises that they made when they were running for office. And the alibi that they usually use is they say that the Dixocrats tie things up. Well, there was a time when black people were politically immature that they thought it was the Dixiecrats that were keeping the Democrats from fulfilling their promise. But today as Negroes become politically mature, they can see that a Dixiecrat is nothing but a a Democrat in disguise, that you've got to be a Democrat before you can be a Dixiecrat. And as our people begin to see this, they also are able to see that uh, it is actually a coalition of Southern Democrats along with the Northern Democrats who actually play a giant political con game to make them at the same time they are not. A good example of this, recently when I was in Washington, D.C., watching the senator's filibuster, I noticed that in the back of the Senate room there was a huge map on the wall showing the states where most of the Negroes lived. And in each one of those states where the majority of the Negroes were living, the senator from that state was involved in a filibuster, which meant that he had the filibuster in order to keep those Negroes from getting voting rights. Because as soon as the Negroes in the southern states get voting rights, they will vote out of office the present racist segregationists who are posing as senators in Washington, D.C. And once the Negro gets the vote and he can oust these southern senators and southern congressmen, then that means the present committees that govern the direction that this government takes in its foreign and domestic policy will be changed because the committee chairman will be changed. And in many instances, they'll have a black senator or a black congressman. The including of black people into the governmental system automatically will mean that the political philosophy of the government will change, the political direction of the government will change, and it will have an effect upon the economy of this particular country. In fact, the 22 million Afro-Americans are in a position to bring about a bloodless revolution where America is concerned, because if America gives complete voting rights and voting power to every person on this continent, it will include overnight a block of 22 million Afro-Americans who have a unique political and economic philosophy. So this means that America, for the first time in history, represents a country that can actually involve itself in a bloodless revolution. All other revolutions in history have been bloody. The Russian Revolution was bloody. The Chinese Revolution was bloody. The French Revolution was bloody. The Cuban Revolution was bloody. Revolutions historically are always bloody. Now, America is in a unique position to involve herself in a bloodless revolution by giving the 22 million Afro-Americans the ballot. And if they don't give the 22 million Afro-Americans the ballot and make possible a bloodless revolution, then they are going to force the Afro-Americans to use the bullet, and it will be a bloody revolution. And this is what I meant when I say the ballot or the bullet. It's the same thing as Patrick Henry meant when he said liberty or death.
1: Gentlemen, Minister Malcolm X discusses black nationalism.
2: Minister Malcolm, since nationalism was able to put approximately 35 nations of our black brothers in the United Nations, how long do you think it will take to solve the problem of 22 million Afro Americans economically, politically, socially? in america well it's true just as it took nationalism to bring about freedom for our brothers and sisters in africa and asia it'll take the gospel of black nationalism to bring freedom to the 22 million afro americans here in this country and uh, we who belong to the muslim mosque incorporated although islam is our religious philosophy our political economic and social philosophy is black nationalism And we adopt this philosophy so that we can work with all other leaders and all other organizations in a program that everybody can become involved in and participate in in order to eliminate the political, social, and economic evils that afflict our people. Now, the political philosophy of black nationalism only means that the black man should control the politics and the politicians in his own community. And the politicians must also be made to take the responsibility for helping to eliminate the evils that affect our people in our own community. And uh, the economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that our people need to be reeducated into the importance of controlling the economy of our own community, controlling the economy of the community in which we live and by controlling the economy of the community in which we live, it means that we have to learn how to own and operate the businesses of our community and develop them into some type of industry that will enable us to create employment for the people of our community so that they won't have to constantly be involved in picketing and boycotting other people in other communities in order to get a job. Also, in line with this economic philosophy of black nationalism, in order for us to control the economy of our own community, we have to learn the importance of spending our money in the community where we live. Anyone who knows the basic principles of economics must be aware of the fact that when you take the money out of the neighborhood in which you live and spend it in an integrated neighborhood, or rather in your effort to integrate, you spend it in a neighborhood where you don't live, the neighborhood in which you spend your money becomes wealthier and wealthier and the neighborhood out of which you take your money becomes poorer and poorer. And this is one of the reasons why wherever you find Negroes, a slum condition usually develops, so we have to live in the ghetto, because all of our wealth is spent elsewhere. And even when we try and spend the money in the neighborhood where we live, usually because we haven't learned the importance of owning and operating businesses, the businesses of our community are usually also controlled by outsiders. The stores are controlled by people who don't even live in our community. So even when we try and spend our money in the neighborhood where we live, we're spending it with someone who puts it in a basket and takes it out as soon as the sun goes down. So the economic philosophy of black nationalism puts the burden upon the black man of learning how to control his own economy. And the social philosophy of black nationalism means that we have to become socially mature to the point where we will realize the responsibility is upon us. To elevate the condition the standard of our community to a higher level and we can only do this by uh working together in harmony in unity to in some way eliminate the evils that are destroying the moral fiber of our community evils like drug addiction drunkenness illegitimacy that's brought about by loose sexual behavior fornication and adultery and once we eliminate these evils that are so destructive to the moral fiber of our community the level of our society will be higher and you'll find that our people will be satisfied to live in our own social circles and enjoy life in our own social circles instead of trying to force our way into the social circles of those who don't want. So as I said, just as it took nationalism, to bring about the independence of our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia. The goal or the objective of the political, social, and economic philosophy of black nationalism is designed to bring about the complete independence of the black people in this country by making us become consciously involved in controlling our own community. Once we can control our own communities now, then perhaps we will later be able to control our own country, control our own nation, and govern ourselves and in some way have control over our own destiny. And in order to uh, bring this about, the Muslim Mosque Incorporated is involved not in trying to spread any religion, but to work with people of all other religions. We will work with our people. We don't care if they are Christian or Jew or Muslim or atheist or agnostic, whatever they are. Our desire is to spread the gospel of black nationalism. We want to evangelize the gospel of black nationalism. And once this gospel of black nationalism is spread among our people, it means that those who are in the Baptist church can remain Baptist, but they take the political, economic, and social philosophy of black nationalism. Those who are Hebrews call themselves black Hebrews. They can still practice their religion, but take the social, political, and economic philosophy of black nationalism. And this philosophy in itself will bring about the independent thinking of the black people in this country and eventually lead to the complete physical independence of the black people in this country.
3: Thank you.
0: All right, so we're back with the commentary. Powerful words from Brother Malcolm X. Um, let's go to the first point. Um, they talked about nonviolence and, you know, we did an episode on this and it was so uh, interesting. Like literally he was saying the exact same thing, saying that nonviolence disarms the victim right. and nobody ever teach tells the abuser to not be violent. It's always the victim cannot respond to violence. The, the victim can't defend themselves Mm -hmm. the finger is always point on them and it's never point on pointed to the person that is oppressing and um so they were asking you know what about Martin Luther King and it was like Martin Luther King what has he been successful in and uh, Malcolm X was like well he's been successful in going to jail he's been successful in getting (laughs) water hoses on him but That non-violence thing was not successful. It was successful in making white people comfortable. It's successful in making your oppressors comfortable. It's successful in making them uh, feel like, oh, okay, well, everything's good. Yep. That's it. That's all it does. And that's why America loves it.
3: Yeah, um... Back to what you said, this it just reinforces what we were talking about in the previous episode, how you can't protest your way to liberation, uh, you can't be holding hands with the oppressor to liberation, uh, that violence is the only language that oppressors know. And for Malcolm X to essentially affirm that, like back in the day, like literally uh, almost what is it, 50, 60 years ago... It's it's crazy to me that we are now still saying it. But like we always say, the American government has the same exact playbook, right? So while we're sitting up here and we're thinking that going to a protest is going to make a difference, they want you to do that. They want you to go to a protest instead of burn shit down.
0: Yeah. And I think it's indicative more so of us, not even of America, that we're having the same conversation and literally have to tell people again that little was 1960, and it's literally the same exact words. I could read that right now, and you wouldn't even know what I was talk- if I was talking about then or now.
3: And then to bring up like Malcolm X, like I know like historically or whatever, they're always pitting Malcolm X against MLK, right? Like Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X. They're always pitting them against each other, and like one is for violence, one is against violence, etc. But, like, for them to bring it up and say, well, why aren't you trying to do what he's doing? Like, Malcolm is totally right. What, what was he doing at that time? He was literally selling out the American people. We talked about that in the previous episode, how he was literally selling out the American people.
0: The black Americans.
3: Yes, correct. The black people. He was literally selling out black people for the sake of his bank to make him more money. Yep, pretty much.
0: So, and yeah. if you want to hear that episode, listen to Michael Michael, uh, Michael Jackson. Martin Luther <laughs> King was a sellout. Okay, so and then the guy was bringing up the March on Washington, which we talked about then. But it was it was interesting hearing him say it again because again the same exact playbook. They said wasn't the March on Washington successful? Wasn't that great? Didn't everybody love it? And Michael X was like, yeah, it was successful in being pretty much, in my own words, a photo op. It was successful in being a status symbol. It was successful in people saying that they went there, they're in the video, they took the photos. But it was supposed to be a black people revolt. It was supposed to be a young quote-unquote, Negro revolt, and it was not that. It was sanitized. It was co-opted by JFK and the government, and that's what it was. And he was talking about how even, you know, they were saying, you know, if stuff don't get passed, we're going to be back. They never came back mm-hmm. because that wasn't
3: the point. That was never the point. And we just want to, like, relate that back to now. Think of Black Lives Matter, the organization. What was happening? Summer of, what, 2020? Summer of 2020, what happened? There was literally photo ops. Even here in Memphis, we had people who were, quote unquote, organizing. And then the moment midterms came around or politics came around, they were gone. They never did anything with that.
0: You had Nancy Pelosi over there at the place. You had Kamala Harris over there at the place. You had all of the yes. politicians over there. You had people doing the electric slide with the police officers. They It literally was the exact same playbook. If we don't learn this history, guys, if we don't learn this history and, and stop it when we see it happening, this will literally be the story for the rest of the eternity of America. This will keep happening. Um, So, okay, again, in the advocating for yourself is... Defending yourself is as an oppressed person is always going to be seen as a threat. So as as, as far as people who are oppressed, whether it's being poor or black or uh, part of the LGBTQ+ community, America's gonna hate you regardless. So I don't know why a lot of us are caught up in what will the what will the people think? How will we appear on TV? We can't look <laughs> crazy in the protest.
3: Literally. What? They already, they
0: already don't care in the first place. Why are you concerned? Like that's that's just the internalized. It's just all that the capitalism and the anti-blackness and everything. It, it just makes you feel shame for addressing concerns.
3: I feel like that's like indicative of like, white supremacy, period, like, because whiteness tells you that you must be pure, you must be soft, you must be angelic, you must be, uh, not do anything wrong, right? So, because of that, when you get on television or you're going, you can't, you can't be angry, you can't be upset, because then you're gonna, you're not gonna be pure, your intentions aren't pure at that point, and so, yeah, I think that develops definitely, like, that's a strong indicator of anti-blackness and white supremacy.
0: Yeah, it's definitely uh what they call it a decor, demeanor. It's like that uh British stuff. Like you gotta you gotta walk a certain way. You have to be a gentleman. Have to be a lady. Uh, you know you can't <laughs> respectability. That, but I'm just saying, it's 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 something like that. Like you can't talk too loud. You can't be like you said too angry. Yeah. Unless it's about something that uh white supremacy says you can be angry about, like not eleven. Yeah. That's then you saying. can be angry. Yeah. Um, so something else he was talking about was the difference between human rights and civil rights. Now this is when it kind of becomes, we kind of differ in, um, and I figure obviously if Malcolm X lived, uh, to the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, um, he obviously would have saw that this was not going to work. So he was pretty much saying that, you know, we need international support and in order to do that, we have to classify, uh... This is a fight for human rights because, you know, the other countries, they can't help us out because civil rights has to deal with, you know, uh, the jurisdiction of the country. And the thing is, that sounds good and that sounds great. But, but what we've come to see is um, not only is anti-blackness like the another uh, given for just the world at this point, anywhere you go as a black person, you finna find some type of discrimination, some type of struggle. And when people from all over the world come into America, one of the first things they know is don't associate with black people, don't let your kids uh, play with black people, don't let your uh, your uh, children marry black people. But not only that, okay, we know about anti-blackness, but we also know about neo-colonialism. Mm-hmm. And even though these countries did receive independence, they were not independent.
3: Nope.
0: Even now, a lot of these folks still owe millions of dollars from these IMF loans. They have uh, Western interests being the the real hand of control with them. And if they were to, they can't even fight and fight against. The people that's in their country, they can't even rise up against Mm -hmm. that without fearing to be gunned down. So they're not finna come and be like, okay, America, not only are we going to charge you with the genocide, but then we're going to do something about it. We're going to boycott. Like, they're not going to do that. And so instead of, like he was saying, don't look to uh, American government to resolve the issues that America's doing. But then you also don't look to the Western powers and even these other countries that are controlled to Western powers to did get over here and tell the Western America that they're wrong. America's <laughs> running this thing. We have to, we have to take judgment and all this stuff into our own hands. It's over for pointing. Help me, help me. We have to help ourselves.
3: And and I think that comes with like revolt, obviously, rebellion, uh, community. Like when we when we emphasize like it's not important that you're going to the UN or the United Nations and telling them, Oh well, the United States government is doing bad, they know that already. When we emphasize like they literally already know it, right? Um when we emphasize things like that, like I feel like it takes it away from what's currently going on and the material conditions that need to happen, like right now for people, and not waiting on some judge in some uh, made-up place that majority of people don't even know even exists, right? So, while I think that Malcolm X was fund is fundamental in the struggle right and in, in analyzing things that's going on we kind of think he's wrong at this point
0: so. yeah this this one was kind of it kind of missed the mark um but but, we do think but that, uh, i will say just continue to especially listen to his very final speech yeah um that he ever made and that in that one he finally uh understands pan-africanism and internationalism and that it's not going to come from the UN it's coming from the black communities all over the world that are being oppressed right. to fight with each other so that came a little bit later but yeah uh so another thing he was talking about was something that was very interesting is uh, the white guy, or whoever that guy was, was talking about, you know, there's certain legal proceedings that have to go before certain things can be done. They were talking about the four little girls that got killed in that bombing in Birmingham. Absolutely awful. And, uh, Malcolm X was like, yeah, the government should have came down there and and uh, helped uh, the people and protect them and stuff like that. And the guy was like, well, there's all type of uh, legal procedures. You got to do this and you got to do that. And that was a city thing. And, And Malcolm X was like, the government don't have to follow no rules when it comes to invading countries, when it comes to doing this, when it comes to doing that, they can do whatever. But when it's something that comes to helping oppressed people, specifically black people, oh, well, now it's rules. Now it's this and that. And something that reminded me of is, it's not as, uh, well, it is. It's it's, it's just as a big factor now. I was thinking about the mask mandate now. And... You know, COVID is still here. People are still dying of COVID. Well, we're getting back to Delta numbers, and the little mask mandate is gone. And people say that we can't get the mask mandate now because you have to go through the, the judges, and you have to go through this, and you have to go through that. And we can't do a lockdown because then you have to go to. The government can literally take your take your house away from you. Imminent don't matter. They can
3: they can literally do whatever they the want. The
0: government literally can shoot you and kill you for no reason. The government spies on us every day. The government can decide <laughs> that it's gonna be martial law tomorrow. But when it comes to putting a piece of plastic on your face, that's when
3: they Their hands on. are tied. Oh, whoa. Oh, we Can't do it. Can't when it
0: comes it. to uh, increasing the minimum wage, that's when, oh, we have to go through the course of actions. We yes. got to do this. We got to do that. Health care. Right. When oh, it comes to health care. Oh, no.
3: When it comes to um, getting the, if we even think the about. The stimulus like, checks. Yeah, the stimulus checks, the right amount of votes, the whatever. It's always like, oh, oh, we can't. We can't. You know you know, we got something that's tied up in this, and we got something that, like, it's some kind of excuse. It's like somebody, one of your friends that you always ask to do something, and they'll do anything if it has, like, some benefit to them, but if you ask them to do something for you, then it just doesn't, they just, like, oh! Oh, I'm busy. I need to take care of my kids. Or I need to do this. I need to do that. I mean,
0: think about the Ukraine. They steady giving them folks Uh, money. I know. They steady giving them
3: people money. And we asked for a stimulus. Gas is $6. He said, sorry, uh, y'all are not getting stimuluses. And the amount of money that was left over that the government's got for COVID, I want y'all to send it back so that we can help with the war. I just, I just can't. Like, this is a whole other topic But we really, really need to go more in depth into war crimes and war in and of itself and how the United States government has, like, contributed to war in all senses, in every sense of the way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But that's the thing. You said you can send troops... You can send troops anywhere. When folks protesting, y'all send troops all the time, but they said they couldn't send troops over there to protect the black people. They only sent the troops there once uh, folks started tearing up the yep. property of the white
3: folk. Yep. Then
0: we're going to send the troops. But it's not to help y'all, and they shot and killed a uh, little boy. Yep. This is the government in which we live. If it sounds familiar, it's because it is. If we have to say it once, we have to say it a million times. America has no new tricks. It literally goes by the same playbook because we as a people don't have no type of political education. We don't pass it down. Granted, there is a big uh, humongous system trying to keep us from learning this information. But we have not done a good job at passing it down either. And so they can just do whatever. Like it's, I'm sure it's, they can do it in their sleep at this point because they know people are just... They get us down to a science. They get all this stuff I mean, down to a science. It,
3: it really is. It's down to a science. And they have the data that supports this. Just like with anything else, I promise you, the United States government has data on top of data on top of data that says if we push this propaganda... People will believe it, and it will distract them from the actual issues that are happening.
0: Right? Because think about how much money got no these corporations—think about how much money these corporations put into marketing. Into marketing how much money only, these corporations put into hiring psychologists to get into the human brain and understand what is it that makes you buy a product.
3: I remember there was this time, and this kind of off topic, but I remember listening to this audio where they were talking about Febreze. When Febreze first started, um, they didn't have very much like a marketing understanding of what their people wanted. So they had to spend like a billion dollars in hiring another type of uh, marketing team so that they could actually get popular within the United States. And they will do that. If, if these companies will do that, you absolutely, positively know the United States government. The United to States government has had
0: a uh, a four hundred year uh head it's head start. start in getting yeah. the information on the people. So so they know. We, so that's why it's our job. We have to continue to educate and make people conscious of these things. You
3: gotta learn your enemy. Yeah. That's the that's the thing in war. You gotta learn your enemy. All
0: right. So another thing we was talking about um was about voting rights. And, and uh, of course, there's, we disagree from the jump on this. <laughs> but it was something interesting. Again, the exact same conversation that black people are having now. Black people are still the divide, the deciding vote for majority of things. Yeah. We are still the deciding vote. For the Joe Biden and the uh, Trump election. For the Obama election. For all these things, we are the deciding vote. And we continue to not get nothing. Obama was the one time they claimed he was gonna get something. We got less. Joe Biden came, did all their campaigning, took
3: all of us from the streets, put people in the streets to vote. Older Black people. Oh yeah, had all them Black people
0: out there Been in the COVID, COVID. Yep. in
3: and the cold,
0: and we can't get a stimulus, and we can't get an in increase in minimum wage. Knowing we work majority of those minimum wage jobs as well as Hispanic brothers and sisters, uh, nothing. And so what, what? What he was saying was, um, in his opinion, they needed to vote out uh, these white supremacist Dixiecrats. Even though he himself agreed that the quote unquote Dixiecrats and the Democrats were the exact same thing, because the entire government is a white supremacist cesspool. So, in his in his theory, you know they with the black voting power they could vote in black you know black representatives and black this and black that and here's the thing hindsight is 2020 20, we're here right we we saw we had everybody these people again the government is 30 30 steps ahead
3: y'all want black people in the government sure we'll pick them we'll, corpor- we'll we will uh corrupt them with capitalism
0: or they're not, they're already corrupted more more than likely they are already corrupted to even want to to want to run for but if they're not yeah we'll we'll will we'll mold them we'll shape them into what we want to be just like
3: they did in MLK just
0: like they did with any anybody, anybody. we'll yeah. mold them and shape them into who we want them to be and they're still going to serve uh, the role of this white supremacist capitalist system exactly another thing he was talking about was you know there's a potential for it to be a bloodless revolution in America. And that was unfortunately incorrect as well. We got the voting rights. And again, America was already two steps ahead. We got your, we got your, um, controlled opposition. We got your controlled opposition. Uh, we're going to let you have your little black folks, but they ain't finna let you do no revolutionizing. Even if they did, we know revolution don't come from a vote. So yeah, on that one, again, we don't agree with that at all uh, every bloody every revolution is bloody because every revolution is bloody it has to be if this revolution will be bloody as well there's no such thing as a voting your way into a revolution and um, unfortunately I mean that's that's the truth and um, yeah so what else uh the last thing we are talking about was black nationalism and in this way I feel like um he was close but it It still was playing into capitalism, uh, in my opinion. Again, Malcolm X though was the catalyst to revolutionary organizations soon after. Right. So his 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 framing was the foundation in which the Black Panther, the Black Liberation Army, all these other places all these other organizations was built.
3: And and what I told Gabby and, and somebody has asked us this previously, but like what do you think should be like the foundation of somebody's political ideology? Like you don't start with liberalism, right? You need to start with something like Malcolm X. Once you get to Michael X, then you can build on top of that. Because, like, he legitimately had some really good information that I think is worthy of building up on. Yeah, for sure. But, yeah.
0: Um, and so, for him, black nationalism was pretty much, you know, black people being in control of our politics, our economics, uh, our communities. Which I don't have any problem with. Uh, The only thing that I didn't agree with was him uh, focusing on the dollar and focusing on, uh, you know, what you hear a lot of times, people still talking about the circulation of the black dollar. The black dollar leaves here, whatever. But the thing is, what we talk about in the 40s, they tried that with the black businesses. Black businesses, it wasn't because of a lack of of knowledge, a lack of of will in which he... uh, States, It's because that's the way the system is. You're not going to, you're not going to get ahead of white people. You're not going to have enough money to open up enough businesses. You're not going to have enough capital to be able to pay all these black people fair wages. So you're not exploiting them. It's just not going to happen that way.
3: Not under capitalism. Yeah. like It's just not possible in capitalism, especially with white supremacists, white people having a 300, 400 year start. Yeah. Like it's just, that's, it's just not possible.
0: Yeah. Now if now if he's talking about like what soon the uh Black Panthers and other people like them started to think about was yes we need a black community, yes we need control of our politics and economics, but we need an economic system that is not exploitative, we need an economic right. system that's not based on what the white folks is doing. So we need communism. We need a economic model where we all can help each other and there's no uh isn't that exploitation based
3: on community? Yes,
0: based it's- on community fully. Yeah, um, so yeah, there's that, and um, you know, he was talking about the social stuff. It- no, I mean, the the the, the illegitimacy and, and the drunkenness ain't the reason that we in these, these problems that we're in. It's white supremacy. And um, I feel like later <laughs> on he started to get that. I feel like there's still some of that uh, Elijah Muhammad thinking that was in his head yeah. that black people have some type of mindset that's making them uh, perform the way they do, and it's not the entire system. But... Yeah, uh, 100%. So overall, I I really did enjoy um he, I always enjoy Malcolm X and, and whatever he talking about. And it, and it's and it's so awesome to see how I mean, he was at that point he was ahead of his time. He
3: really was. So even
0: while, I mean, there's a lot of things we didn't agree with, uh, he was ahead of his time in that, I mean, there was a time where there were more anarchists and socialists, but they had pretty much got dr- driven out. So the main voices you were hearing were the Martin Luther King types, the yep. types that was like, well, the integration, 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 but he was thinking outside of the box. He was, he was intuitively thinking and knowing we can't play into this system. We can't integrate and try to integrate our way in. We have to do for ourselves, which like I said, led to people thinking about communism and, you know, us eventually getting to where we are today. Do Um, you think
3: um, that he was really, like, harping kind of, like, on, like, self-determinism and stuff like that? Like, I feel like a lot of what he was talking about... Like can relate back to being self-determined and not having to depend upon the government to do certain things.
0: Yes, absolutely. But yeah. he, he, like he
3: was getting there. He was definitely getting there. He was
0: definitely getting there. And yeah. like
3: I said, I'll, I'll
0: link that one of his last speeches uh, in the description because, like I said, he was he was really starting to think about uh, organizing. He was in Africa organizing himself. And was starting to, uh,
3: you know, think more radically in his politics. For, so, for all we know, he may have ended up like a Lorenzo Irvin, right? He, he, we we never we don't know. know uh, so. Unfortunately, the FBI killed
0: his ass in the Nation of Islam. Fuck them both. Literally. But, uh, yeah, we we wanted to uplift his name. And we wanted to introduce some of y'all who may not, you know, know much about Malcolm X. Uh, introduce some uh, some speeches to you and uh yeah let us know what you think um that's all i got you can hit us up at building our pw off any comments also if you would like to contribute to the work we are doing the passing of designs books the redistribution of funds the feeding of the community the growing of the garden you can do so link is in the description if you would like to be a part of the work we're doing in memphis you can do so link will be in the description this has been gabby and katie and this is building our power